heaven will be like, the streets will be gold, and see my family. In heaven, I'll only see dinosaurs. Maybe I would get to see all my relatives and aunts and uncles and Grandma Irene and Grandpa Carl because they died when I was born. And I would get to see Marty and um, my cousins that are older now. And I would get to see my house. And I would get to see everything inside of it, even my nine-nine kitty cat and my favorite things in there. And I got get to see, and I could also go back in time, and I think I could go back in time and watch when I was a baby, and I would also find my neighbors, and Jesus would always come around on his birthday, throwing out candy, and um, throwing out special cards that have tattoos in them, and also scented backpack hangers, that would be awesome! <laughs> I think heaven is gonna be like, um, we can stand on the clouds and we can and God and Jesus is gonna be so big and we can lay on the clouds for bedtime and it's gonna be so comfy. I think that heaven will be beautiful and it will have streets of gold and houses and shops lined up on every side of the walls and when you and when you're there you will feel a sense of love and joy and relief that you have never felt before. With, with flowers and castles and it will be beautiful. I think heaven is gonna be like everyone's gonna be so happy and it's gonna be fun and we're gonna eat lots of yummy food with God and um we're gonna do fun things together. I think heaven will be like gold and I can fly around. I think that heaven is a perfect place and no matter what you looked like or no matter what you sounded like, no one would care, no one would judge you. And I think that there could be a thousand dollars in heaven and no one would probably even notice because they just wanted to be with God. Um, we will have fun and um, we will, nobody there will be mean or no, everybody will be happy. Mm -hmm. Noah, what's your um, thoughts? Uh, I think we'll just be up there, we'll be worshiping God and we'll have the perfect life and we'll have a huge house and we'll live gratefully for God like God intended. Okay. Macy, what are your thoughts on heaven? Who's going to be your sister? Ava. Ava, your friend, okay. Anything else? Mm, I just think up there in heaven will be way better than down and, here. And, and it'll yeah. be perfect. I wish we'd be with God. We yeah. will be with God. So will Fluffy. Yes, all dogs do go to heaven. Fluffy will be there too. <laughs> I love that. Aren't kids so stinking adorable? Now, when I asked parents to film these videos, I said, do not prompt them in any way. Don't suggest anything. Just stick a camera in front of their face and ask that question, what will heaven be like? And I just think it's interesting that even from a young age, we begin to develop this ideology and this theology of what heaven will be like. And chances are, if someone were to ask you about heaven, you would come away with similar words, right? Bright, clouds, gold 
old. Chances are you probably wouldn't say that Jesus is throwing out candy on his birthday or anything. But usually we come away with this picture that we will be in the clouds getting our set of angel wings, plucking harps as we sing to the song, Heavenly Sunlight. And although those thoughts and pictures, well, they're just that, they're innocent, they actually don't capture for for us the full biblical view of what we get that heaven will be like. And today, that's what we're going to discover. We're going to dive into this book and just ask that simple question, what will heaven be like And before we get started, I just want to pray for us because perhaps today you'll hear an idea about heaven that you've never heard before, but I believe it's the biblical one. So I'm just praying for God to give us wisdom. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you're a God of justice and that you have in store for us a heavenly home, a glorious one. And we thank you that you've given us your word and you've told us about it. And God, I pray that you be with us today as we open it up and that you give us wisdom to know what you have in store for those who love you. And all this we pray in the name of Jesus, our risen Lord. Amen. If you were here last week, we kicked off our new series, The Certainty of Eternity. And last week, Doug preached a message entitled, 10 Seconds After You Die. And as Doug showed us last week, there exists three stages of existence. Life now, life in between, and life forever. Now, typically, when we talk about the afterlife, we usually don't have any conversation about this life in between, so to speak. Usually the conversation is, as soon as you die, you either go to heaven or hell. However, as we saw last week, there does seem to exist this intermediate state of sorts, this in-between life before the eternal heaven and hell. Now, as Doug pointed out for us last week, and as the scriptures make clear, this does not mean that this in-between life will be asleep or we won't be aware of our eternal fate, or we won't know that Jesus is there or not. Matter of fact, as Doug pointed out, in this intermediate state, as soon as you die, you will be wide awake. You will know that Jesus is Lord. As soon as you die, you will know your eternal fate. And if you died in Christ, you will be with Christ. But that in-between is actually just a taste of the eternal heaven to which the saved in Christ are going. Now, I do have to be honest with you here. The Bible doesn't say a ton about this in-between life. However, it does say some things about it. And to me, some of the most convincing evidence of it is in the fact that consistently throughout the Scriptures, we are told of a singular return of Christ. That is, that Jesus is coming back once. He's coming back again one time. And then after that, a single judgment day that after he returns, we will all face judgment, and then a singular event in which the soul of the Christian will be resurrected, or a one-time event in which every authentic Christian throughout history will be receive a new resurrected body in which they'll have for the rest of eternity. One such example of this is over in the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me in chapter 4. Paul says this down in verse 13. He said, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now, those who sleep in death, that's talking about those who've already died in Christ. And then he goes on and he says, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not proceed those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven 
with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ, they will rise up first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be with the Lord forever. Here, the apostle Paul is telling us that Christ will return someday and his return will be visible. We'll be able to see him. It'll be glorious. It'll be a radiant and wonderful sight and it will be personal. It's Jesus who's coming back. But that after his return, he is taking everyone who belongs to them, including those who've already died, and he's taking us with him up into the clouds, and he is leading us to the throne room of God. And then at that time, all of humanity, whether saved or lost, are brought before the throne of God so that we can face judgment. It's what Jesus describes in Matthew 25 when God is separating the sheep's from the goats. It's what we're told over in the book of Hebrews in chapter 9 and verse 27, which says, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Now, it doesn't say judgments as if there are many, but judgment, meaning one judgment day. And in this judgment, we will either be vindicated by God or condemned. And that will solely be based on our relationship with Jesus and whether or not we've surrendered our life to him. Because, as our deeds will show on Judgment Day, we do not deserve to be in the presence of God. However, because of the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, and for anyone who surrenders their life to him, a judgment of our deeds will also reveal a life forgiven by grace. And those who accept that free offer of grace in this life, they will be shown mercy and granted an eternal reward. But for those who choose to reject this offer of grace in this life and continue to live for self, they'll be condemned and separated from God for eternity, hell. Now, the Christian should never fear Judgment Day because Judgment Day is not a day of decision, it's a day of explanation. But all of that to say and to make this point that this life that we're living now, the world that we're in right now, it will come to a final end and it will come to an end when Christ returns. And when he returns, then all humanity will face judgment. Judgment Day will happen. And from there... God will send all of humanity either to heaven or to hell based on their relationship with Jesus. But those things have not happened yet. Christ has not returned. And so there exists this in-between life for those who've already died. Now, I want to remind you, as Doug told us last week, as soon as you die, if you are in Christ, you will be with the Lord. And you will be in this paradise of sorts. Paul tells us over in Romans 14, 8, whether we are alive or dead, we belong to the Lord. Again, nothing, Paul says, for he is confident, nothing, neither death nor life nor anything else will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But this paradise that we go to, this in-between, it's only the beginning. It will have a full culmination. It will be complete after Christ returns, after the general resurrection of the saints, and after Judgment Day. And it's here that we begin to understand the vision that the Apostle John had in the book of Revelation of a new heaven and a new earth. Check out this video. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, 
But here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. Literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth, just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which 
seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. Picture and image, isn't it? Perhaps this is not something you've ever thought about before, but this really is the message of the Bible, that after the end of this life, God is making all things new and taking up his dwelling here on earth. He is bringing heaven to earth. See, the message of the Bible is one of redemption, God redeeming all of humanity, but not just humanity, also creation itself. Paul talks about this over in Romans in chapter 8. This is what he says down in verse 19. He said, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonships, the redemption of our bodies. The point is that the heaven in which the redeemed of Christ will spend the rest of eternity is not some far-off distant land in the skies or not even up above us in the clouds. The heaven in which we will spend the rest of eternity is right here on earth but not earth as we know it today. No, no, no. It's a new earth, and new in the sense of a refined earth. That's the image and the vision that the Apostle John gets in the book of Revelation in chapter 1, and I want to read for you what he saw. He said, Revelation 21, starting in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and he himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
to the thirsty. I give water without cost from the springs of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this. I will be their God and they will be my children. The old order of things, the former things, the things of this present life, the way that we know it now, it will pass away. The idea here is almost as if God is restoring creation back to the Garden of Eden. It started in a garden. It culminates to a city. He's creating us and taking us back to the world he created from the very beginning without sin and without the effects of sin. And that's the very idea that we get from this vision that John had, that God is making his dwelling place here on earth, and that is the new earth. And that in this new earth, sorry, all of evil will be destroyed. It will no longer have any presence here. So let's begin to look at some of the specifics of this new heaven and new earth. Well, first, in heaven, there will be no danger, nothing to threaten our peace and safety. In verse 1, John tells us that there was no longer any sea. And what he means by that, because for the ancients or for the people of John's day, the sea was a source of jeopardy and peril, of danger and threat. And John says there's not going to be any of that in heaven. No danger, nothing to threaten our peace and safety. The best imagery we get of this is back in the Old Testament from the prophet Isaiah when he says, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. That's a predator and its prey. The wolf chases after the lamb to eat and devour it, but no, not in the new heaven and earth. They're going to eat together, right side by side. And the lion will eat straw with the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy. On all my holy mountains, says the Lord, there'll be no danger. Also in heaven, there will be no physical discomfort, no hunger or thirst or extreme heat, no pain. I love the image that we get down in verse 4 of Revelation 21, that God will wipe every tear from our eyes. Anything that has ever caused us hurt or pain that's caused us tears, they will be gone because the God of creation is coming down. And the image we get is that of a parent who picks up their child after they've been hurt and is crying. And maybe you've done this before, right? You take your thumb and rub it across their cheek to wipe away those tears. It's that intimacy, that imagery, that guarantee that we get of what heaven will be like. So no more physical discomfort. Now, most significantly for our bodies in this new heaven and new earth, there will be no death. The curse of death will be no more. Indeed, the great physical glory of heaven is everlasting, never-ending life that's bestowed on us. And that means that these bodies that we are living in now, they are but tents, not our permanent home and residence Because God has in store for us a new resurrected body. It's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he says, So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable. And then he goes on to say, In the flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? No death. And so we can say goodbye to disease and to sickness, to cancer and to dementia, to heart attacks, to strokes, to a broken and frail body that only grows weaker day by day because the new body that's promised to the Christ follower is not one of death, not one of decay, but an imperishable, incorruptible, immortal, resurrected body. 
Heaven means no more fear, no more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more death. But heaven also means rest. It's what Paul tells us in the book of Hebrews in chapter 3, starting in verse 9. He said, "Then there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. In heaven there will be rest. But I want you to understand something about the biblical concept of rest. Rest does not mean rest from any kind of physical activity or work. Rest here is from the rest of the toil and mental stress that work in this life causes See, long before sin ever came into the world, Adam and Eve, they were working. They were engaged in physical productive activity in the garden. It wasn't until sin and the curse came did this work become laborious and tiresome, causing us to sweat and causing us discomfort. Someone has rightfully said, heaven will not be endless rows of hammocks, but neither will heaven be us just sitting on clouds singing for the rest of eternity. Most Bible scholars agree that in heaven we will continue to be creative using our God-given abilities to create, produce, imagine, accomplish, achieve, to rule the way that God intended us from the very, very beginning. In this new heaven, we likely will be able to retain memories of this present life, but only the memories that bring us joy. Also in this new heaven, we'll likely be able to remember other believers from this life. After all, heaven is a gathering of all the saints. But even still, even still, all of these promises, all of these riches, all of these glories, it still is not the thing that makes heaven heaven. And there is one key word that summarizes all of heaven and points us to what makes heaven heaven, and that's the word glory. Now, the biblical word for glory means greatness, heaviness, or weightiness. The Hebrew word is kavod. And this kavod, or glory, is often used in scriptures figuratively to mean significant, important, noteworthy, or impressive. And everything the Bible tells us about heaven is just that. It will be glorious. It is kavod. Our new resurrected bodies, they will be significant, impressive, These promises that we get in this new life, they'll be significant, important, noteworthy, impressive. But the whole reason we get these glorious bodies, this glorious promise, this glorious new earth is because of the kavod of God. And the glory of God is his infinite significance, the totality of his perfections, the fullness of his deity compressed into a single concept and word. And God, he is transcendently glorious. But when God shows up on the scene, his glory shines for everyone to see. God's own visible presence manifests his glory. And it's the glory of the Lord that will illuminate the new heaven. That's what John tells us down in verse 22. He said, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need a sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of the Lord gives its light and the Lamb is its lamp. Glory is the single word that will describe heaven. But it's God alone that makes heaven, heaven. John tells us more about this new heaven and new earth when he says this up in verse 10. He says, and he, talking about the angel who is showing them all of this, and he carried me away in the spirit to uh, a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, like clear crystal, crystal. See, wherever, wherever God is, there heaven is also. 
And so the fact that God is coming to earth is the reason why heaven becomes heaven. John tells us, and I've already read this verse, I want to read it again in verse 3. John tells us, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. God is taking up his dwelling place among his people and it's what makes heaven, heaven. See, heaven is wherever God is. Heaven is not about the jewels. It's not about the mansions. It's not about the crowns. It's not about the streets of gold. I agree with most Bible scholars who say those are just images and pictures to help describe the glorious scene. That's not to say that they won't be there. They very well may be, but they were just pictures. The best thing that the Apostle John could grab onto to describe this wonderful, glorious kavod of God. The presence of God amongst his people is heaven. It's what will make heaven, heaven, where our faith will be made sight and our hope will be realized. And it's the presence of God that makes everything so glorious and heaven so wonderful. Even King David, back in the Old Testament, he understood this about the presence of God. Listen to what he said in Psalm 16. He said, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to shale or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life and in your presence, in the presence of God, there is fullness, completeness, fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. The presence of God brings fullness of joy. At his right hand, or what he does, there are pleasures forevermore. Heaven will be one of endless joy and delight because the redeemed will be in the presence of God. Now, in this life, we can get glimpses of the presence of God. There are ways that we can practice God's presence even now through prayer and through worship, through honest study of his word, through uh, a genuine time with other Christians when we humble ourselves and serve. But those are just glimpses. It's the reason why we long for heaven because we want more of the presence of God. C.S. Lewis was right when he said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we are made for another world. And the reason that nothing in this life satisfies, nothing else brings fullness of joy is because we are made for another life. We are made for a life where we spend time in the presence of God. And heaven is what we long for because heaven will be the full, uninterrupted, endless, true presence and kavod of God. That is the endless joy and delight. And in this new heaven that's marked by glory, is filled with the presence and glory of God, it will also be the place where God rules and reigns forever. It will be his kingdom. No longer will the kingdom of darkness have any right, privileges, power, opportunity, or chances to enter or disrupt this new heaven and earth. For the reign and rule of Christ will be established, and the kingdom of God will come on earth as it is in heaven, and he will reign for eternity forever and ever and ever and ever. Now, there is a sense in which the kingdom of God is already here in our world today. See, when Christ came the first time, he inaugurated his kingdom. But the biblical idea of the kingdom of God is about God's rule, not about the realm or territory over which he rules. And so the sense in which the kingdom is already here is through the church. Because the church or the community and people of faith are the ones who are living under the reign of Christ. After all, the core of our confession of faith is that Jesus is Lord 
And when we say that, we are saying that he is our king. And if we're calling him our king, then that means we're living in his kingship. Furthermore, the very purpose of the church is to do what, God, what Christ wants us to do, to follow him. So that means that he's calling the shots. We're living under his rule and reign. Even still, the mission of the church is to challenge others to leave the defeated kingdom of Satan and to join and to be a part of the kingdom of God, to live a life surrendered to Jesus. But this kingdom, although it's already here through the church, there's still a sense in which it's not yet. It's not been fully established, and it's not until the end when Christ will come again and establish the kingdom of God over all of creation. For when he returns, all of creation, all humanity will face judgment, and at that judgment, every person will then acknowledge the authority of God in Christ. Even in the dungeon of hell, the lost will be eternally subjected to the rule of God because, in effort, they're paying for their sins. But for those in Christ, in the royal home of heaven, the throne of God will be set up and the saints will continue to serve the Lord forever and ever. So we could summarize all of heaven in this way. This is what heaven will be like. God bringing his space to our space. Giving us an eternal new heaven and earth where there's no fear, no pain, no physical discomfort, no sufferings, no effects of sin, no sin, no darkness, where we'll have a new resurrected body that does not wear down or decay, no death. But most importantly and most significantly, the kavod of God will illuminate this new heaven and earth. His presence will be fully realized for God will have made his dwelling place here on earth. He will live among us as he sits on his rightful throne and reigns with justice and mercy and loving kindness. This is heaven. And it's what the saved in Christ place their hope in, an eternal home with their eternal God. And that promise, that home, it is a secure promise. God will come through. God will be victorious. God will establish his home here on earth as it is in heaven. And some of the final words that the Apostle John writes in the book of Revelation, he records these words of Jesus. Jesus saying, look, I am coming soon and my reward is with me. And I will give to each person according to what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It's secured. He's coming. And every man has an appointment with the king. And he's going to give to each one according to what he, was, he, what he has done. And I would say to you this morning, that means what you've done with Jesus. Because after all, it's only those who've washed their robes, as John says in verse 14, meaning those who've surrendered their life to Christ and been washed in the blood of the Lamb. It's only those that will be afforded the joy of life eternal. But for those who failed to acknowledge the Lordship of Christ, for them eternal damnation. But in the midst of all of this about the new heaven and new earth and Jesus coming back and that sure hope that it's going to happen, John records the Holy Spirit and the church saying, come. Listen, the Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. And the reason the Spirit and the bride say, come, is because they're offering an invitation, a gospel message invitation, an invitation to anyone, to whoever 
Because this new heaven and this new earth, it's not limited to the rich or talented, to the beautiful or powerful, to the educated or famous, to the intelligent or witty, to the well-born or successful. It's not, heaven is not limited to the healthy or to the strong, to the innocent or flawless. This invitation is to whoever, to anyone who is thirsty. And the invitation is to come and to drink freely of this water of life, this eternal life. And this morning, I want to give that same invitation that the Spirit in the church gives to come and to receive this water of life without cost. And the reason it's without cost is because the cost has already been paid. It was paid on the cross of Jesus when God sent His one and only Son, Jesus of Nazareth, to live a perfect and sinless life and then to die the most embarrassing, humiliating, excruciating, and painful of deaths. And in doing so, accomplish salvation for the whole world. The wrath of God was put on him. And Paul, commenting on God and what he was doing on the cross, said that God moved by his love for us, that while we were still sinners, while we were still in our sins, sent Jesus to die for us. And he died for the ungodly, the sinner, the most wicked and wretched of people, to redeem them and to live eternally with them so that they can be counted with the saints in heaven and enjoy an eternal bliss in the presence and kavod of God. And the scriptures are clear. If we believe in and on Jesus, if we confess with our mouth that he is Lord, repent or turn from our sin and then be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, then if we continue to keep faith in Jesus, we have in store for us a new heaven and a new earth where we'll spend eternity in the presence of God as he is sitting on his rightful throne ruling with justice, mercy, and loving kindness. So if there be anyone who thirsts this morning for the living water that Jesus offers, come receive it without cost. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your gloriousness, your perfection. You are wonderful, oh God. You are magnificent. And you have created us to be with you and to be in your presence but because of our own sin and our disobedience, our wanting to run things our way, we were separated from you. But moved by your love for us, you sent your one and only son, Jesus, to die. So that even though we have failed you, we can still live eternally with you. And we give you praise and honor and glory for that. God, I pray that we would day by day continue to long to be in your presence. And I pray this morning, God, if there be anyone in here who does not know you, who has not yet received this living water, that they would come. Today would be the day of salvation. They would come and receive it knowing it is without cost. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his cross. And we thank you for the resurrection, that promise that we have an eternal home with you someday in glory. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.